few weeks ago, I mentioned some recent survey, 2020 survey results. And the results, I suggested, were startling. And not because we live in an increasingly secular or non-Christian culture. Those kinds of unbiblical survey results are to be expected. But these surveys were conducted among the churched and the unchurched. More in American culture at large and those professing to be evangelical Christians. I suppose given the downward spiral of our country, we should expect some impact of the culture on the church. We wish it was the other way around, that the church would impact the culture, but the opposite is becoming glaringly apparent. One of the surveys has been conducted by Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Research every other year since 2014, which shows this steady decline. Now, it's obvious that the survey questions deal with some contemporary issues, and significant shifts in contemporary culture have had a demonstrable effect on the church. Consider the following. All of these are evangelical results. Now, I'm not going to address these today, but just by way of illustrating the culture's impact on the church. Statements were given, and then you could agree or disagree. Everything that I'm going to share with you, all the percentages are from self-professed evangelicals. First one, the Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally True. 26% of evangelicals agreed with that statement, which is almost double what it was just two years ago in 2020. Uh, by the way, one of the tenets defining factors of evangelicalism is the inerrancy of Scripture. So 26% don't even meet the qualification to be called evangelical. Next. Religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It is not about objective truth. Too much daytime TV. You have your truth, I have mine. 38% of evangelicals agreed. Again, up 15% from just two years ago. This one is interesting. Everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. The old tabula rosa, or blank slate, I guess, 65% of evangelicals, two of three agreed, which I suppose means that they've never had children. <laughs> Next, gender identity is a matter of choice. Again, obviously a contemporary issue. 37% of evangelicals agreed. More than one in three said, yep, gender is not tied to biology, to God's creation of humanity as male and female, but to freedom of choice. Another hot topic today, the Bible's condemnation of homosexual behavior does not apply today. 28% of evangelicals agreed, up more than double from two years ago. 
Do you see how culture is impacting the church? Now, there were some encouraging results. 94% agreed that sex outside of traditional marriage, traditional marriage is a sin which contradicts the previous statement. 91% agreed abortion is a sin. Again, I am not going to talk about those today. To be clear, I do believe that the Bible has some clear, very clear teaching on uh, those topics, but that's not for today. There were a couple of shocking results that grabbed my attention that I do want to address this morning. Are you ready? These two were most distressing to me. First, God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, up 14% from two years ago, 56%, that is over half of evangelicals agreed. Say at this point, I want to say this very gently, but if you agree with that statement, you do not understand the gospel. I'm sure that every pastor who looked at these surveys, and these are widely disseminated, I'm sure that every evangelical pastor who looked at these uh, st uh, statistics certainly had the response that I quickly did, not our church. What if it's half right? Leads to the last one. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 43% of evangelicals agreed, grieved, and grieves my heart. These are stunning statistics and attack the very foundation of the Christian faith. Why do I bring this to your attention today, October 30th? Because tomorrow is October 31st. The most important day in church history, the anniversary of the start, if you will, of the Protestant Reformation. It was 505 years ago on this date, October 31st, that a 33-year-old Augustinian monk named Martin Luther posted his 95 theses on the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany. The door was the community bulletin board. You, you know, I've told you this before, but, it was, but the document was written in Latin as an invitation to his academic colleagues, pastors, monks, professors, an invitation to debate, to discuss some of the teachings of the church. Someone got a copy of the thesis, translated it into German, uh, printed it on Gutenberg's new invention called the printing press, and Luther was literally an overnight sensation. You see, the document, in the document, he was calling into question a number of teachings and practices of the Roman Catholic Church, most notably the abuse of the cell of what are called indulgences. An indulgence is an official church document, piece of paper that you could purchase to reduce yours and later others like your deceased parents to reduce your stay or their stay in purgatory. You see, while sins committed temporally, or that is in time, could be forgiven by the work of Christ in eternity, the sinner still needed to be purged of his sin through purgatory's purging fires. For those declared saints by the church, which is very, very few, they could bypass purgatory and ascend straight to the glories of heaven. But for the average sinner uh, like you and me, 
purgatory could last, are you ready, for millions of years. It was an amazing invention of the church with both its indulgences and purgatory without biblical support, of course, but it was quite the moneymaker for the church. And let me stop right there and let you know that this is not a, a, a sermon or a talk to bash the, the Catholic church, okay? Most people don't know church history and don't understand the fact that until 1500, not counting the great schism of 1054, that until 1500 there was one church. This is our church's sad history. Luther would later question and dismiss many false teachings of the Middle Ages church, but it was this event on October 31st, 1517 that eventually launched all of Europe into this protest of church abuses now called the Protestant Reformation. Shared this with you before, but the motto of the Reformation was post tenebras lux. Throughout the Middle Ages, hundreds of years, you could have lived and never heard the gospel. It had been suppressed by the church after darkness, light. For five central biblical and theological convictions of the reformers, like they're called the five solas of the Re Reformation. They too are in Latin. The word sola simply means alone or, alone, uh, uh, or only. The five solas then were sola scriptura, sola gratia, solus Christus, sola fide, and sola deo gloria, translated scripture alone, grace alone, Christ alone, faith alone, God's glory alone. Now why were these the central convictions of the reformers like Martin Luther or Philip Melanchthon or John Calvin or Ulrich Zwingli or Theodore Beza and a host of others? Because, I'm going to tie this with I, I'm, I'm going to tie this now with those surveys because, frankly, the church had lost its way. It's no longer the salvation or justification was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is found in Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. In fact, Al Mohler, president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, once wrote, we must always remember that what was at stake in the Reformation was nothing less than the authority of Scripture and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to suggest that the church today, unduly impacted by the culture, is again losing its way. Why? Well, we don't want to be seen as different or odd or strange or old-fashioned or exclusive or out of touch. Acceptance by the culture has become supremely important to us. You do understand that they killed Jesus for being out of touch with culture. As survey after survey reveals... Even the evangelical church no longer holds to the five solas. Many no longer believe Scripture alone. That is, many in the church today no longer hold to the inspiration and the inerrancy and the authority of Scripture. Those are bygone days. 
And so as a result, many churches have become concerts or shows or pep rallies or motivational talks. After all, the scripture is full of outdated morals and ancient myths that are no longer true or applicable. Many in the church today no longer believe in grace alone through faith alone. Talk to, listen to me, talk to the average churchgoer and their the churchgoer and their ticket to heaven is not by God's unmerited favor through simple faith in the gospel. Most people think themselves basically good. I mean, certainly better than average. And God will receive them into heaven because, well, they're just good. They deserve it. They've earned it. Besides, God would never, another myth of Scripture, God would never send people to an eternal torment in hell anyway. That's the stuff of Dante's Inferno. We don't believe that anymore. very comfortable and most concerning and what I actually want to address today is as the surveys reveal about half of so-called evangelicals no longer believe in Christ alone after all God accepts the worship of all religions not just Christianity and, and besides, Jesus was just a good teacher. He was neither the Son of God nor God the Son. Satan's most dreadful attacks against Christianities have come, yes, against the truth and faithfulness of Scripture, yes, against the um, biblical understanding of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, but most, listen, most egregiously against the person and work of Jesus Christ, Christ alone. That can't be true. It's, it's so... Exclusive. Christ alone. Simple but good definition of Christ alone goes like this. Christ alone is Lord and Savior. And therefore he alone is able to save. And his work, and I would add the word alone, his work alone is all sufficient. Another said it like this, Christ alone is exclusively the Son of God as to identity and therefore all sufficient as to His work of atonement. Alistair Begg in a sermon on Solus Christus said it this way, there is no other Savior than Jesus because there is no other person who is qualified to save. Do we believe that? The evangelical church, in an increasing manner, no longer believes that. Lock the doors. Sell the building. What are we doing? Let's take a quick aside and remember the church context, our church context in the 16th century that brought about the Reformation. You see, while the Roman church, while they affirmed the deity of Jesus Christ, which puts them ahead of about half of evangelicals, they added to his work. That is the doctrine of justification by grace through faith in Christ alone. By doing so, the reformers rightly said that they diminished, eliminated actually the all-sufficiency of his work. Christ's work is fine as far as it goes, but it needs more. 
The, the, the church actually taught that while the work of Christ was important, in fact, indispensable, it was insufficient, and it'll only get you part way there. You need to add to the work of Jesus. How did they do that? They added a, a, an elaborate sacramental system by which you could, don't miss this word, by which you could earn grace. In short, they said, salvation is not by grace through faith in Christ alone. Oh, no, rather salvation is to be earned. It's provided, but it needs to be earned through the observance of the sacraments, of which there were not two, but seven, baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, penance, anointing, of, anointing the sick, which includes last rites, holy orders, and matrimony. Now, I'm not going, listen, I'm not going to take the time identifying each of those, nor would the church, even today, likely rank them. But I would suggest to you that baptism, the Eucharist, and penance are most important as they deal with sin and salvation. So follow this very briefly. The, the church taught that at baptism, typically as a baby, the guilt and consequences of your original sin, the fact that you were born a sinner, since that's what the Bible teaches, contra 65% of evangelicals says that you're born innocent, the consequences of being born a sinner are washed away at baptism. You are actually at baptism as an infant regenerated. That's great, I suppose, but there's a problem. As we grow up, don't know if you noticed, we still sin, and those sins have to be dealt with. No problem. That's what the Eucharist and penance are for. First, the Eucharist or communion during the, the Mass is how you receive the body and blood of Christ and thereby receive grace. You see, when the priest holds the elements in the air, and he says in Latin, not hocus pocus, he holds it and blesses the bread in the cup, the elements literally turn into the body and blood of Christ, making, listen, each mass a re-sacrifice of Christ contra the book of Hebrews. You may know that as transubstantiation, not only that. But the sacrament of penance also deals with this problem of ongoing sin. Penance is made up of three parts. Contrition, that is feeling really sorry for your sin, important. Confession to a priest and satisfaction assigned by said priest. Satisfaction, don't miss that, are works assigned by the priest depending on the severity of your sin by which actions you receive absolution. That is the removal of the guilt of your sin. What happens if you do not confess every sin or forget some. This plagued you, understand, Martin Luther. He would spend hours before his confessor as a monk, Johann Staupitz. He would spend hours trying to confess everything that he could possibly think of, and then he would leave after hours and immediately turn around, come back, oh yeah, I remembered some more. Can you imagine? This is, what if you... Don't confess every sin or forget some. This is a problem. You see, no one except saints can adequately do enough penance to skip temporal punishment. Your, your sin still clings to you, and so you'll have to spend time in purgatory to purge the remaining pollution of your sin. Yes, Christ through his cross will provide eternal salvation for you eventually, but it's up to you to purge the pollution of your sin. All this leads then to an incredibly important distinction leads to ultimately the Protestant Reformation. The church taught a system of earned and an infused, infused grace. What do I mean? They said that Christ by his death 
provided, made grace available to you, and through the sacraments by which you cooperate with Christ, you receive or earn infused grace. Think of it this way. Think of it as a bank account. Every time you observe a sacrament, you get a little deposit of grace. But every time you sin, you lose grace. And by the way, it's typically a big withdrawal. And at the end of your life, your remaining balance of grace determines your time in purgatory. So in the end, don't miss it. You are earning grace. Sorry, for most of you, millions of years in purgatory. Reformers said no. Why? This system diminishes the full sufficiency of the work of Christ. There is nothing, they said, that could be added to His grace to the grace that he gives, grace alone. Salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So, so that was the church context for the Reformation in, in the five solas, especially this concept of Christ alone. But what is the biblical basis for this teaching that salvation is only to be found in Christ? And some of you say, finally, we're going to get to the Bible. I know this is a talk. What's the biblical basis that Christ is indeed the divine Son of God and as such, His work, because He is the Son of God, His work is all-sufficient? Let me give you just a very few passages, ones you're familiar with. John chapter 14. It's the night of His betrayal. It's the night of the farewell discourse. He's going to be crucified the next day. And He says to His disciples, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one, no one comes to the Father but through me. Do not miss that. Does God accept the worship of any and all religions? Apparently not. Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John, they're on the way to the temple at the time of prayer, and there's this man, he's crippled for 40 years of his life, unable to do anything but beg for his mere subsistence. He just would beg alms as they're making their way. You're making your way to church, right? That's when you're feeling most generous. So they would place him there to get alms every day. And Peter looked at him. Well, they thought he was going to, you don't look at, right? When you're going by someone who's, who's, who's got, you know, need help, please give, whatever. At the, you don't look at them unless you're going to give them something, right? I'm right. You know it. And so Peter looks at him. He musters up some strength and he thinks, I'm going to get something. And Peter looks at him and says, look upon us. Silver or gold, I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And he stands to his feet and he goes leaping and praising God into the temple. Well, that caused no small ruckus. And so they arrest Peter and John, put him in jail overnight. And the next day they ask them to give an account of this healing. And this is what Peter says, let it be known to all of you. And all the people of Israel, but by the, by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom Christ raised from the dead, by that name this man stands before you in good health. Jesus is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven which is given, uh, that is given among men by which we must be saved. One name. Evangelical, 1 Timothy chapter 2, there's one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, meaning there is only one to whom we confess our sins and find forgiveness, and that is through Jesus. This, you see, is the truth of solus Christus, 
As Alistair Begg said in his sermon on Solus Christus, we must realize how revolutionary such a notion is. One way through Jesus, one mediator in Jesus, and one name, the name of Jesus by which we must be saved. The truth of the Christian faith all centers on the person and work of Jesus. He's not optional. Earlier I suggested there was a critical distinction to be made between the Roman church and the Reformation church of the Middle Ages, whereas the Roman church said, and continues to say, by the way, that we receive the infused righteousness of Christ through our observance of the sacraments and thereby earn grace. The reformers said, no. We receive not infused, but the imputed righteousness of Christ as a free gift of His grace. We are, listen, we are actually counted righteous in Christ. Right now, you are counted righteous in Christ. Not because of what you do, but because what He has done. Luther called it the great exchange. Jesus takes our sin, we get His righteousness, by which we are declared and counted righteous before God. This Latin phrase was simul justus et, et peccator. At the same time, just and sinner. You understand that? You ever struggle with your ongoing sin? I know you don't want to sin. I don't want to sin either. You ever struggle with it? You are right now at the same time just before God and sinner because of what Christ has done. Brings us lastly to what about today? Is Solus Christus still true and needed today? The answer is absolutely yes. You see, there was another cry after the Reformation, about a hundred years later, that went like this, Ecclesia Reformata Semper Reformanda. The church reformed and always being reformed. Don't see that word reformed as change. The idea, that's what many want to teach today, that we just need to be changing things and updating. No, 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 no. That's not what he means. The church is always in danger of slipping away from the truths of the gospel and the Christian faith. We must always be alert and reforming, correcting our back, path back to Scripture. In surveys of today cry for simper. Reformanda, the need to always be reforming by coming back to the Word of God. Consider first, never has the person or identity of Jesus been more vigorously attacked, both outside and inside the church. Listen very carefully. I say this gently but unapologetically and strongly. Your eternal salvation depends on a proper confession of Jesus as Lord, the Son of God, God in the flesh. The 43% of professing evangelicals who say that Jesus is not God are not Christians. Cults always deny the person or the work of Christ. For example, the Jehovah's Witness, which are nothing more than reborn Arianism of the fourth century. They deny his essential deity. That, that is, they say that he is not God, just like evangelicals. Mormons deny his exclusive deity. 
the heart of Mormonism, everyone who follows the teaching of the Church of Latter-day Saints, that's Mormons, by the way, will one day be a god like Jesus. That's why they're called the God-makers. They deny the exclusive. There's only one human who is God, and that's Jesus, and you will never be one. Second, also a great challenge to the church is pluralism. What is pluralism? <laughs> that God accepts the worship of any religion. Listen, the Roman church never said Jesus was unnecessary for salvation. They simply added faith in Jesus, which you clearly cannot do, Protestant Reformation. But pluralism is different. It suggests that there is more than one way to heaven. Jesus may be a way, but he is not the only way. This makes Jesus, frankly, unnecessary. The 56% of evangelicals who believe, uh, believe that neither understand who Jesus is, nor do they understand the gospel. Strong words, I know. Say, it sounds so arrogant. No, that's Christian. Let me briefly share three significant problems with pluralism or the idea that God accepts the worship of any religion. Know as I begin that this is the opposite of Christ alone. That's why I'm saying that the evangelical church no longer believes that. First, it makes Jesus a liar, or at least mistaken. It makes the writers of Scripture liars, deluded, or mistaken. People understand, generally, people understand that to accept the inspiration and inerrancy and authority of Scripture is to make Jesus exclusive, the only way, because that's what Jesus said, and that's what the Bible says. So you've got to dismiss that. I believe some things in here, but not all things in here. John chapter 17, prayed to the Father. As he prayed to the Father, Jesus said, This is eternal life, that people may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, his Son, Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis addressed this issue famously in his book, Mere Christianity. I know you've heard this before, but I love it, and I'm going to read it again. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say, if he were alive today, what would C.S. Lewis say? That people often say about him, I'm not ready to accept Jesus as a... I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing you cannot say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Second, such teaching, pluralism, makes missions, that is the preaching of the gospel around the world, Unnecessary. What a wasted life. Well, I met a young lady in our uh, ESL class on Wednesday night, just four days ago, whatever that is, who's on her way to Afghanistan. 
Why? Let's bring our missionaries home. Even worse, if people can make it apart from faith in Jesus, Christ alone, it seems to me that we make people culpable by preaching to them. It would seem better to let them remain in blissful ignorance. Why in the world would Jesus tell his disciples to take the gospel to the ends of the earth if people can get to heaven without the gospel? Third, if people can get to, and this one is most disturbing to me, if people can get to heaven apart from Jesus, then ultimately his cross was nice but altogether unnecessary. Why would Jesus have to die taking the sins of the world in his body on the cross to be raised again the third day if such suffering and sacrifice was not needed? The truth of Christ alone is not only sufficient for salvation, the truth of Christ alone is absolutely necessary for salvation. Luther once said, I must listen to the gospel. It tells me not what I must do, but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done for me. Away with this nonsense of this is what I must do to get to heaven. It must be this is what Jesus has done. Christ alone. Let me go back to those surveys for just a brief moment. Barna Research just released the results of a similar survey conducted just this summer but this one among 24,000 teenagers in 26 countries of the world, so it's not just the U.S. The results, unfortunately, as expected, revealed, and I quote, only 50% among teens who identify as Christians say that Jesus was resurrected. Half the people call themselves Christians and say, but he wasn't raised from the dead. Read 1 Corinthians 15, you are of all people to be most pitied. Not even half, 44%, less than half say that Jesus was God in human form. That's why I'm preaching this sermon. I close with these thoughts. When you ask many today, even in the church, where will you go when you die? Some say, heaven, I hope. When you ask why, you get all kinds of answers. Well, I try to be a good person. I, I, I'm good to other people. I follow the golden rule. I, I, I'm better than most and certainly not as bad as most. Some in the church will even give you spiritual answers. I go to church and pray and read my Bible. I do Christian stuff. If you follow those kinds of answers, with which I have done on many occasions, what about the gospel? That is, what about who Jesus is and what he did when he died on the cross as your substitute, bearing your sins in his body on the cross, and was raised again the third day as proof that God accepted his sacrifice? What about the gospel? You often hear people respond today to that, oh yeah, that too. I want to suggest to you this morning that Jesus will not ever be that too. You do not receive salvation by trying hard, getting partway there, and allowing Jesus to make up the rest. He is either everything or he is nothing. He is either Christ alone or he is no Christ at all. Why will you get to heaven when you die? 
because of Christ and his all-sufficient finished work alone. Which, Which means, by the way, that the strength of your salvation is not based on the strength of your faith. It is based on the strength of the one believed. So right now, you need to stop asking yourself the question, did I do it right? Did I believe it right? Did I say the right words? Ask yourself this question, did Jesus do it right? Was his death and resurrection enough? And rest in that work. Not yours. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. I want everybody to close your eyes, if you would, please. And just right there where you are, just close your eyes and, and listen to me. If you were to die today, sometime this week, and Jesus, it will be Jesus, it will not be Peter. Jesus met you at the gates of heaven and asked, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Would you present your resume? Look how good I was. Look at everything that I did for you. It's all listed here. Lord, I did lots of things in your name and I cast out demons and I did many miracles. I went to church. I read the Bible. I even said grace before meals. It's a rather impressive resume. Don't you think, Jesus? What will Jesus say to you? We don't have to guess because he tells us in Matthew 7, depart from me, you sinner. I never knew you. I want you to understand that there's only one answer to that question. Why should I let you in my heaven? Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross. I cling. It's Christ alone. It will be all him or he will be nothing at all. And so as I ask that question of you this morning, why should Jesus let you into his heaven? What? You could live a million lifetimes and develop a million different resumes. We have how to, how to make resume classes in college. You could have the most perfect resume of everything that you've done and you will not make it. It needs to be the shortest resume ever made. Why should I let you into my heaven? Because Jesus, you died for me. And if you've never done that, if I ask that question and you're going, well, I'm good, mostly good. I go to church and I've always been a Christian. No such thing, by the way. I've always been good. I've always tried really, really hard. And you think of Jesus as that too? I want to invite you to believe the gospel today. Jesus will not be added to anything that you've done. You are dead and your trespasses and sin. And Jesus died to take you to heaven. The only way you'll get there is if he carries you the whole way. And so you can pray a simple prayer. You don't have to say these words. 
You can just pray a simple prayer right where you are. Listen to me. Listen very carefully. If even those numbers are halfway right, that means a quarter of you in this auditorium, five, six hundred people here, 150 of you are lost. So you can pray this prayer. Lord, I made a mess of my life. I've chosen sin over you. I am a sinner. But I believe, Jesus, that you died on the cross for my sins. And I'm going to cling to you, not to anything that I've done, but what you have done in your death, burial, and resurrection. The very fact that I'm praying to you is proof of the fact that I believe that you're raised from the dead. Forgive me of my sin. And Jesus, be the Lord of my life. Nothing in my hands I bring simply to your cross. I cling. Father, I pray. I could stand up here and scream and holler and beg and plead, cry and moan and groan for the rest of my life, and it would do nothing if you don't, by your Spirit, make people alive in Christ to respond to the hope of the gospel. Father, I pray that we're not the typical evangelical church, but it would be foolish for me to think that everybody in this room is a Christian. Father, would you save people today? I pray in Christ's name. Amen.